In these podcasts, we uncover one chapter after another from the life of the Prophet ﷺ in an attempt to learn about him, love him, and better ourselves through his example. Immersion, mentorship, companionship, and tarbiyah. These are just a few of the things we offer alongside knowledge of the prophetic biography at Sira Intensive. Two weeks dedicated to the study of the life of the Prophet ﷺ and his noble characteristics. So this winter, join me in Dallas, Texas, alongside your classmates from all over the world to learn the story of the life of the best of humanity, the mercy to mankind, the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ. Go to seerahintensive.com to register and for more information. Bismillah wa alhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillahi wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een Inshallah continuing with our series on the life of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam Asiratu Nabawiyya, the prophetic biography We've been discussing and talking about the events of the fourth year of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam's residence in the city of Medina, the fourth year of Hijrah now, um, we've talked about a few of the incidents that occurred here in the very beginning of the fourth year. Today, inshallah, what we're going to be talking about is a little bit more towards the middle of the fourth year of Hijrah. So, many of the historians and the scholars of the Sirah, such as Ibn Ishaq, uh, Ibn Hisham, Waqidi, Ibn Kathir, and others, mentioned the fact that after the incident of Banu Nadir, which we talked about previously, Surah Al-Hashar, um, the Prophet ﷺ remained in the city of Medina for the months of Rabi'ul Awal and Rabi'ul Thani. So the incident of Banu Nadir occurred in the beginning of the month of Rabi'ul Awal. So the Prophet ﷺ remained in the city of Medina for the next two months, and part of the month of Jumad al-Ula, in that particular month of Jumadul Ula, the Prophet ﷺ had received information. So the Prophet ﷺ obviously because there had been quite a bit of turmoil up to this particular point. You know, it's very important that whenever we discuss and talk about the seerah and we're talking about these specific incidents, particularly during the period of Medina, it's very important to kind of uh, maintain context and what has happened, what has transpired, and what is continuing to happen and go on. Because in that lies the understanding and the context of exactly the decisions that are being made by the Prophet So. The Battle of Badr has happened, the Battle of Uhud has happened, there's been a, f uh, a few other incidents as well. So what happened at this, you know, we talked about the very tragic massacre of the Muslims as well, a group of Muslims uh, in the beginning of this fourth year of Hijrah. So what happened at this particular point in time was the Prophet ﷺ had scouts um, who were keeping an eye on the area around the city of Medina. And that was a necessity at that time. It's much like a security system. So that you know if anyone's approaching or encroaching upon your city and your homes. And so the scouts came back to the Prophet ﷺ with the information, with the news, that there are some Bedouin tribes to the north in the area of Najd. And they have begun to, they have started gathering and amassing an army. 
and they are trying to unify some of the Bedouin tribes uh, in an effort to build an army and wage war against the Prophet ﷺ in the city of Medina. The Prophet ﷺ realized that this is something that could become very problematic, this could be very tragic if it is ignored for too long. So at that particular point in time, the Prophet ﷺ gathered together a group of the Sahaba anhum. And the Prophet ﷺ appointed some narrations, Ibn Ishaq says that he appointed Abu Dhar al-Ghifari in charge of the city of Medina in his absence. Ibn Hisham says rather it was Uthman bin Affan. In either case, the Prophet ﷺ put together uh, a group of the Muslims and the Prophet ﷺ set out from the city of Medina marching in the direction of Najd, the north until they arrived at a particular point. This campaign and this incident, which I will talk about the details of, is called the Ghazwa, which means the campaign of Dhatul Riqa'. Dhatul Riqa'. Now that basically means the one that had, uh, or the one who possesses, the one that is characterized by something. Ar-Riqa' in the Arabic language means patches, like patches of cloth. Um, and so what does that exactly refer to and why was this particular campaign or battle, this expedition called Dhatul Riqa? So different historians and different scholars have provided a few different reasons. Number one is Ibn Hisham, Rahimullah Ta'ala, a scholar of the Seerah. He says, that they had certain flags, you know, when, they, when the army would march, they would have banners as a means of organizing the army. So some of the banners and the flags that they had as they marched were stitched together from strips or pieces of clothing. So the flags and the banners were patched together. And that's why it was called Dhaturiqa. Similarly, some uh, of the historians have mentioned that there was a huge tree at the particular spot where they marched to that was called Dhaturiqa. However, um, uh, also Al-Waqidi, another of the early scholars of the Seerah, he says, Bijabalin fihi buqa'un humrun wasudun wabidun. That there was a particular mountain there that had different, almost like different colors to it. There was a mountain that had different colors or shades to it. Part of the mountain used to look red when you looked at it from a distance. Part of it would seem very dark and black. Part of it used to seem very light, almost white. So there was a mountain that had that would reflect different shades. And because of that, some of them called it Dhaturiqa. However, um, in the narration of Abu Musa al-Ash'ari radiallahu ta'ala anhu, narrated by Imam Bukhari and Imam Sahih in their uh, Imam Muslim in their Sahih. So a narration of Abu Musa al-Ash'ari radiallahu anhu that is found in the Sahih of Imam Bukhari and Imam Muslim. A very authentic narration. He says, إِنَّمَا سُمِّيَتْ بِذَلِكَ لِمَا كَانُوا يَرْبِطُونَ عَلَىٰ أَرْجُلِهِمْ مِنَ الْخِرَقِ مِنْ شِدَّةِ الْحَرِّ That rather this campaign was called Dhatul Riqa' because the journey was so long. And the Muslims again, because of their very humble means, very meager uh, supplies that they had, they didn't have a lot of animals for everyone to be able to ride on. And the journey was very, very long. And it was a very hot um, you know, very difficult time of the year for traveling, that over time as they were traveling, their shoes began to wear out, 
and their feet started to blister and bleed. And many of the Sahaba, their feet were getting very severely injured. And so eventually to remedy, and at the same time, these are people's feet. Like, what are you going to do? You, you know, they can't continue, just proceed on forward. You can't just leave people behind either. It was a large number of the army that was suffering from this ailment. So what they ended up doing was they ended up taking their, a lot of their clothes and their shawls and blankets and things like that. And they began to rip uh, strips of cloth from it. And they began to bandage their feet. And so the, 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 the look of the army, the visual of the army was that there were all these Muslims, these Sahaba who were marching and their feet were wrapped up in cloth, were bandaged up. And thereby this campaign, this incident became known as Ghazwatu Dhat al-Riqa' the campaign of bandages. So it was a very, very difficult and arduous journey. So they marched to the north and they intended to go there and you know, face off and meet the tribes of Banu Muharib and Banu Thalaba from the, the families rather, or you can say the, 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 um, the groups of Banu Muharib and Banu Thalaba who all belong to the clan, to the tribe of Ghatfan. So that was the objective. So they marched to the north under a lot of duress and through great difficulty. They finally arrived at the place of Ghatfan where they met, they were met with the army. And this is the other thing that is very fascinating here is a lot of times that I, I constantly allude to this, I constantly um, mention this and, but it is very important to reiterate and it's very important to kind of remind ourselves and to remind others as well about this particular context that while on one side there is a very unfortunate, um, you know, criticism or slander and misrepresentation of the life of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam that these, this is the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and these Muslims, these early Muslims who are just marching around just picking fights with everyone that there was information, there was intelligence that informed the Prophet ﷺ that they are gathering an army. And when the Prophet ﷺ arrives at the place of Ghatfan, what does he find? He finds an entire army, entire training, military camp that is established. So meaning this was the reality, this was what was actually going on. So when they arrive there, they're met with this, this huge army that they're amassing. So the Muslims basically approached them and camped out very near to them. فَتَقَرَبَ nasu. They both camped out from across from each other. وَلَمْ يَكُمْ بَيْنَهُمْ harbun. However, there was not any fighting that occurred. The battle did not ensue. وَقَدْ خَافَ النَّاسُ بَعْضُهُمْ بَعْضًا Both sides decided that it was best if there was not any actual military engagement. But at the same time, this was a very strategic move by the Prophet because it did send the message to the people of Ghatfan that the Muslims of Medina, number one, are not uh, absent-minded, that they are not negligent, they're not just unaware of what's going on around them. And number two, that they will not take this lying down. The Muslims of Medina will not take this lying down. But rather, they, will, they are aware of what's going on outside their city, and they will take the necessary measures in order to protect and defend themselves and their homes and their, 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 their families and their lives. And so there wasn't any fighting at, at this particular point. However, at this time, now there's a little bit of a discussion 
Some of the scholars differ in regards to this, that did this happen at this particular time or did it happen two years later? But many of the scholars of the Sirah are of the opinion that at this particular time, the, what, the, what is called Salatul Khawf, what is called Salatul Khawf, which is the prayer that is offered in a very potentially dangerous situation. For instance, the prayer that is offered within the battlefield, that this is one of the first moments when this occurred. But again, as I said, that there's a little bit of difference of opinion about it. And some of the scholars are of the opinion that this happened actually in the sixth year uh, of, the, of Hijrah, two years later. So inshallah, we'll talk about it when we get to that particular time in the incident, the Ghazwa Banu Lihyan. So we'll be talking about it more so over there. And that was after the Battle of the Trench. And, and one of the things that uh, Ibn Kathir ta'ala, and others also pre present is that it's very well documented, it's a fact, that at the Battle of the Trench, due to, again, um, the situation of the battle, one of the prayers had to be delayed. And the Sahaba and the Prophet were not able to pray the, the Salah in its proper time, but they had to delay it because they were in the battlefield, they were in the middle of battle. And had there already been the Salatul Khawf, they would have a very easy way to remedy that situation, be able to pray within the battlefield. But inshallah, as I mentioned that, you know, we'll be talking about that later on. Um, as far as the numbers that participated in the incident in this campaign of that Turiqah, then uh, the numbers differ. Um, Al-Waqidi, he says that there were 400 companions, 400 Sahaba with the Prophet Some go as far as mentioning that there were 700 um, uh, individuals uh, that were with the Prophet So there were 700 Muslims with the Prophet in this particular incident uh, of the Turiqah. So they stayed there for some time, they camped out from some, for some time. The army of Ghatfan basically retreated and at that particular time the Muslims packed up their stuff and head back to the city of Medina. And so it was what, what we would call from at least the perspective of battle and engagement, it was largely uneventful. However, there were a few very interesting incidents that occurred on the journey itself, going and coming back. So there were incidents that occurred uh, around this particular face-off from the people of Ghatfan. One of the very, very notable incidents that occurred uh, at this particular time was the story and the incident of an individual by the name of Ghawrath ibn al-Harith. Ghawrath ibn al-Harith. Ghawrath ibn al-Harith belonged to Banu Muharib, the people of Ghatfan that the Prophet was facing off against, that the Muslims were facing off against. He belonged to this particular group of people. He belonged to that tribe. So it's mentioned about him that he went to some of his people there, the leaders, and he said, Muhammadan." He said, what are we doing here having this long, drawn-out face-off against Muhammad and his followers? Do, would you like for me to just take care of this situation? Would you like for me to just solve this problem? And they said, of course. Um, how are you going to go about and killing him? He's here with an army. He's surrounded by his companions. And so he says, um, that I will play some type of a trick with him. So they said, okay. So he came into the Muslim camp 
very unassuming, unarmed. And the Prophet ﷺ, and this is also very notable, and this is something that we should know for a fact, and we should, you know, be willing to share. The Prophet ﷺ, at the same time, his default, by default his demeanor, and his standard operating code and procedure was that of non-intimidation. That even though they are there for a potential battle, and two armies are camped out across from one another in a standoff, in a showdown, the Prophet ﷺ still maintained this very casual, very open attitude and demeanor, knowing that he was under the protection from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and at the same time the primary objective being calling people to Allah, and saving souls from the fire of hell, that the Prophet ﷺ was very open in that regard. So once this individual comes in, and he's very, he's not aggressive, he's not armed, he's very unassuming, then he was allowed to come in, and the Prophet ﷺ was sitting there, and of course because at the end of the day they were there for battle, everyone had to keep their weapons close. Because at any moment, if somebody started launching arrows, or somebody launched an offensive, you'd just, you'd be called, you'd hear people shouting, and you gotta get up and you gotta go. So everybody was basically keeping their weapons and their armor nearby. So the Prophet ﷺ was sitting there and he had a sword in his lap. So this man comes and he sits down by the Prophet ﷺ and he says, Ya Muhammad, andru ila sayfika hadha? Do you mind if I look at your sword? Like I, I'd like to admire your sword. And the Prophet ﷺ said, sure, go ahead. فَأَخَذَهُ فَاسْتَلَّهُ ثُمَّ جَعَلَهُ يَهُزُّ يَهُزُّهُ وَيَهُمُّ And so at that time he took the sword of the Prophet ﷺ and he unsheathed the sword, he drew the sword out and he started to wave the sword فَيَكْبِتُهُ and ثُمَّ قَالَ يَا مُحَمَّدْ أَمَا تَخَافُنِي and he started to wave the sword at the Prophet ﷺ and he said, O Muhammad ﷺ, aren't you afraid of me? pointed the sword at the Prophet and he said, aren't you afraid of me? and the Prophet ﷺ said, لا وَمَا أَخَافُ مِنْكَ He said, no. He said, no. And then he said, why would I be afraid of you? What should I fear from you? He said, أَمَا تَخَافُنِي وَفِي يَدِي safe. You're not afraid of me? I'm holding a sword. I'm pointing a sword at you. قَالَ لَا يَمْنَعُنِي اللَّهُ مِنْكَ He said, no. The Prophet said no, and he said that God will protect me from you. Allah will prevent you from harming me. ثُمَّ عَمِدَ إِلَىٰ سَيْفِ النَّبِي صلى الله عليه وسلم فَرَدَّهُ عَلَيْهِ And then one the narration says that then he took the sword of the Prophet ﷺ and he returned it to him. And that this is when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed the ayah of the Qur'an. Ibn Kathir mentions this as the sabab al-nuzul. يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا أُذْكُرُوا نِعْمَةَ اللَّهِ عَلَيْكُمْ إِذْ هَمَّ قَوْمٌ أَنْ يَبْسُطُوا إِلَيْكُمْ فَكَفَّ أَيْدِيَهُمْ عَنْكُمْ وَاتَّقُوا اللَّهُ وَعَلَى اللَّهِ فَلْيَتَوَكَلِ الْمُؤْمِنُونَ From Surah Al-Ma'idah, ayah number 11. That Allah said, O you who believe, recall the blessing of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala upon you when people wanted to put their hands on you, people extended their hands out to harm you, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala prevented their hands from you. Allah blocked their hands from touching you. So continue to live a life of God consciousness. Be conscious of Allah. And only upon Allah do the believers place their trust. And not only that, but <clears throat> another narration which is um, mentioned that 
after this, the narration in Sahih Muslim and also in Sahih Bukhari, that this individual, Ghawrath ibn al-Harith, he, at that particular time, the, it says that the sword actually fell off from his hand. One narration means, says that the sword fell out from his hand, and the Prophet took the sword. And then the Prophet ﷺ told him, Do you believe in Allah? Atashhadu an la ilaha illallah? He said, La. He said, No. Walakin u'ahiduka ala alla uqatiluka wala akuna ma'aqawmin yuqatilunak. He says, No, I don't believe, but I will promise you one thing that I will never fight against you, nor will I ever be with those people who wage war against you. So the Prophet ﷺ, you know, let him go. He said, all right, fine, go. Go about your ways. So he goes back. Remember, he's the one who had kind of created this entire situation. He's the one who had gone boasting to his people. He's like, hey, you want me to take care of Muhammad ﷺ? So he goes back to his people and he tells them, I return back to you having met the most remarkable human being I've ever met. And not only that, but then he told them about the prayer and the conduct and the character of the Prophet ﷺ and the Sahaba and everything that he saw over there. So this was a very fascinating incident of Ghawrath ibn al-Harith that occurred at the, during this campaign of Zatuliqa. There's another very interesting, uh, very remarkable incident that also occurred at this particular time. Um, there's two more um, kind of, if you will, side incidents that I'll kind of mention about this particular campaign. Another very uh, fascinating incident that really tells you about the spirituality that the Sahaba had and the spirituality the Prophet ﷺ had instilled within them and the dedication to their relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and their worship that the Prophet ﷺ had trained them in regards to. This is mentioned by Ibn Ishaq and other, and other scholars like Waqidi and others as well. And Imam Abu Dawood also mentions this in his Sunan that there was, um, there was some you know, type of interaction between the Muslims while they were camped out there at that Tariqah. There was a little bit of some interaction there between a few individuals. You know, there wasn't any war or anything like that, but just like a few different, you know, kind of uh, incidents or run-ins between some of the Muslims and some of the mushrikun. One of the mushrikun, he got very, very upset due to his run-in with one of the Muslims. And so he came to the Prophet, or rather when, you know, he came and basically started to scream and started to pronounce, you know, near the Muslim camp and the Muslim army, Halafa Allah yantahiya hatta yuhriqa fi ashabi Muhammad sallallahu He said, that's it. I've been humiliated. I've been insulted. I've been offended. And I will not stop until I have shed blood of some of the people of Muhammad sallallahu Like he took an oath. I'm going to murder somebody. I'm going to kill somebody. So the Prophet ﷺ at that time, and, and then it talks about it how he started to basically circle around, he started to stalk, he started to uh, you know, almost stake out the Muslim camp. That when the armies would retreat to their camps, he would refuse to go. And he would just stand right there, he would always sit right there, wait right there, looking for some type of an opportunity, waiting for one Sahabi to maybe kind of stray away from the camp for some need or something. And then he would try to pr pounce them and attack them. And so he was dead set on murdering a Sahabi. 
So the Prophet announced, he said, Man rajulun yaklauna laylatana. Who will keep a guard of the camp tonight? We basically need some guards and we need some scouts to stay on the perimeter of the camp and really keep a lookout. Make sure this guy doesn't basically try to come in the middle of the night and try to kill somebody. So one man from the Muhajirun and one man from the Ansar, they both volunteered. They said, Nahnu ya Rasulullah. The Prophet said, okay, فَكُونَا بِفَمِ الشَّعْبِ مِنَ الْوَادِ So the Prophet said, okay, what I want you to do is, I want you to go to go outside of the camp, position yourself strategically there at the mouth of the, of the valley, and there I want you to set up, you know, sit up there on the perch so that you can keep a lookout and see anyone even in the middle of the night trying to sneak in or approach the Muslim camp. So they said, okay. And the two individuals, Ibn Ishaq mentions, were Ammar bin Yasir, radiallahu ta'ala anhumah from the Muhajirun, and the other was Abad bin Bishr, radiallahu anhu from the Ansar. So they both went out and they set up set themselves up where the Prophet and instructed them. So the Ansari says to the Muhajir, Abad says to Ammar, He said, What turn would you like to take? Would you like me to go first or would you like for me to go last? So Ammar bin Yasir radiallahu ta'ala anhu says, you know, I prefer if you went first. You know, because Ammar bin Yasir radiallahu ta'ala anhu was very much in the habit of waking up before Fajr and praying Qiyam and things of that nature. So he said, you know, it's my routine. I can handle a couple of hours before Salatul Fajr, but this is the time when I usually turn in. If you can handle this early part of the night, then I can take care of the last half of the night. So he says, okay. Uh, so Ammar bin Yasir goes to bed. So the Ansari is keeping watch. Now he says, I'm standing out here on the perch, keeping a watch, but it seemed to be pretty quiet at night. It seemed to be pretty uneventful. So he says, while I'm standing here, I might as well utilize my time and I might as well just pray. So he starts praying. Allahu Akbar. And he starts praying and he starts reciting Quran in his prayer. The man who was dead set on murdering somebody, he snuck up in the middle of the night. And when he saw the Ansari in the night in the dark, he could see somebody standing there on the perch. He realized that this is Ribiatul Qawm. This is the individual who is supposed to keep watch. And notify anybody, notify everyone if anyone tries to come. So Farama bisahmin fihi. So he, before he got too close, he drew an arrow and he shot an arrow, and they were expert archers, the people of Ghatfan, and he hit him, hit the target, the Ansari. So the Ansari, as he's standing there praying and he gets struck by an arrow, fantazahu wadahu. He rips it out of his body and he throws it down. وَثَبَتَ قَائِمًا And he remained standing. وَقَالَ ثُمَّ رَمَا بِسَهْمٍ آخَرَ فَوَضَعَهُ فِيهِ He shot another arrow and hit the Ansari who was praying again. And once again the Ansari rips the arrow out, throws it down and continues standing. ثُمَّ عَادَ لَهُ بِثَالِثَ فَوَضَعَهُ فِيهِ Then he shot a third arrow and hit the target again. He hit him again. 
And again, the Ansari rips out the arrow and he throws it down. But now what he does is he does rukur sujood and he finishes his prayer very quickly and then he wakes up Ammar bin Yasir radiallahu anhu. And he says, Ijlis faqada uthbitu. He says, hurry up and get up because I've been hit. So the second that Ammar bin Yasir radiallahu ta'ala anhumah, he stands up, the man who's shooting the arrows, he sees that one have just become two. He can see two people now. And he realizes that, okay, there's two of them. There must be more of them as well. There could be more of them. And he leaves from there. Hariba. He runs away from there. When Ammar bin Yasir radiallahu ta'ala anhu sees Abad bin Bishr bleeding, he says, subhanallah, like, he says that, afala ahbabtani? He says, what, subhanallah, what's going on? Why didn't you wake me up? The first time you were hit. He says, Kuntu fi suratin aqra'uha. I was reciting a lengthier surah from the Quran. I didn't want to cut the surah short, I wanted to finish my surah. But when he kept on hitting me with arrows, then I concluded my prayer and I decided to wake you up. He says, and I swear to God, if it was not for the responsibility and the possibility of me not fulfilling the responsibility that the Prophet ﷺ had entrusted me with, and that was keeping watch and keeping guard, I would have lost my life before I would cut the surah short. Like either I would have died or I would have finished my surah. Those were the only two options. Cutting the surah short, ending before the surah completed, was not an option for me. But I realized I have a greater responsibility. And so this is a story in the incident that's mentioned as well. And, you know, this narration is discussed a lot of times uh, from, for another reason within the realm of fiqh. That a lot of times, you know, it's, it's brought up about the issue of whether or not, you know, bleeding breaks your wudu or not. And that's a whole other discussion I'm not going to get into here at this particular point in time. But the reason why I mention that is that at the same time, it's, you know, some people might take this particular narration and look at the conduct of this sahabi and try to figure out or assess or discuss, does this actually make sense to do something like that? You're praying, not even a fard, but a voluntary prayer. That's not mandatory on you in any way, shape or form. And cutting short a voluntary prayer is permissible, let alone for an emergency. And for him to, be, to go as far as saying that I would rather die than cut my voluntary prayer short, like that doesn't make sense and you know this doesn't add up in terms of usul and maqasid and so let's get one thing clear all those things are very very important they're fine and dandy that's an area of research and study and even teaching for me personally that's something i engage in so i definitely value that entire science and that entire discussion but understand that the sahaba lived by a higher code they lived by a completely different code. They weren't in the business of doing mathematics when it came to their Islam. They didn't have a spreadsheet and a chart 
Where did this rank in terms of usul? They, they, that's, that wasn't how they operated. They only had one principle. And that was Allah. They lived for Allah. They breathed for Allah. They fought for Allah. They gave up for Allah. They slept for Allah. They ate for Allah. They worked for Allah. And they were willing to die for Allah. It was just a very, very different code and different mindset. And so we here in our, and I'm doing quotation marks for those listening who can't see, in our quote-unquote enlightenment and sophistication and knowledge, we are in no way um, capable of sitting here and passing some type of judgment and offering our own uh, analysis and thoughts in regards to the Sahaba and their devotion, their dedication. Because at the end of the day, these are the same individuals about whom Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Muhammad Rasulullah wa ma'ahu. Muhammad the Messenger of God and the people who were with him, who were by his side. Rijalun sadaqu These are the same people about whom Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, these are people who fulfilled the, the contract they had with God. Some of them lost their lives fulfilling their contract with God and some of them are waiting for the next opportunity. That these were people that nothing in this world could ever prevent them from standing in front of their master, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and talking to Allah. So this is a very, very different um, you know, mindset altogether. So that was another very remarkable incident that occurred here in this campaign of Dhatu Riqah. The last, um, you know, if you will, side story of the incident of Dhatu Riqah that is very, very touching and shows you a lot about the, the character and the care and the love and the kindness, the generosity of the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Jabir bin Abdullah Al-Ansari. Jabir bin Abdullah is a companion of the Prophet. He was a young man from the Ansar. His father, Abdullah, was a senior Ansari and companion of the Prophet. And he had died as a shaheed in the Battle of Uhud. And we talked about him earlier, for those who don't recall, that when he died, Jabir radiallahu ta'ala anhu, and you know, it was one of those issues where Jabir radiallahu anhu was the eldest of the children of Abdullah. And Abdullah radiallahu anhu, it seems like he had him when he was still very young. So they were maybe like 20 years apart. So he was like a young father to this young man. And so the dynamic between them, they were very, very close. But then Jabir, he had seven younger sisters. So when the father Abdullah was going to battle in the battle of Uhud, he said, Jabir, nothing would please me more than for you to fight by my side in the battle of Uhud, by the side of the Prophet father and son together, by the side of the Messenger But I, one of us has got to stay back to look after your sisters and that ain't going to be me. So you stay back and look after your sisters. We can't leave them. So, and Abdullah radiallahu ta'ala anhu ended up dying as a shaheed in the battle of Uhud. It was very tragic. Jabir radiallahu anhu was devastated. And we talked about the beautiful stories of the Prophet consoling him. And really checking on him and looking after him and, you know, che- checking up on him. And the Prophet gave him the bashara 
gave him the good news that your father, you know, he's in paradise and he was presented before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and Allah asked him, is there anything that you want? And he said that, oh Allah, give me another life and I will once again go and give my life for you. And that from the moment your father's body fell in the battlefield, because it was the daytime and the sun was out, until we buried your father's body, that entire time Allah did not even allow the sun to hit your father's body, but angels were covering him with their, with their, with their wings, shielding his body from the sunlight. Right? And so the Prophet consoled him. So Jabir radiallahu ta'ala anhu was with the Prophet on this particular campaign. And he had a she-camel that he had brought for transportation. But he says himself in the narration of Ibn Ishaq, خَرَجْتُ مَعَ رَسُولَهِ صَلَى اللَّهِ عَلَيْهِ إِلَىٰ غَزْوَةِ ذَاتِ رِقَعَ مِنْ النَّجْدِ عَلَىٰ جَبَلٍ عَلَىٰ جَمَلٍ لِي ضَعِيفٍ I went on a camel, excuse me, I went on a camel, but the camel was very weak, it was very frail. And فَلَمَّا قَفَلَ رَسُولَهِ صَلَىٰ اللَّهِ عَلَيْهِ جَعَلَتِ الْرِفَاقُ تَمْضِي When the Prophet ﷺ, whenever we would stop and it's like every, the army would start moving again, everybody would pass me by because my camel just would, could not move faster. And the habit of the Prophet ﷺ being, um, you know, a caretaker of his people, the Prophet ﷺ didn't march at the front of the army like some, you know, uh, victorious, you know, conqueror, um, you know, or boastful, you know, tyrant. The Prophet ﷺ would travel at the back of the army, picking up after people, making sure nobody got left behind. Like, come on, come on. And he saw that everyone's moving forward, and Jabir is slowly falling to the back of the army to the point where he fell so far back that the only one left behind him was the Prophet ﷺ. And Jabir says, I wasn't aware that I had gotten so close to the Prophet ﷺ. And, but I had gotten that close to him and all of a sudden it felt like somebody was kind of tapping my camel on the back and kind of, you know, giving it the sound to go, go, go. And kind of tapping my camel on the back and the next thing, and he said, I turned over my shoulder to look and it was the Prophet ﷺ and he was smiling at me and with his stick he was lightly tapping the camel, you know, kind of giving it the signal to go, go, go. And this is a mu'ajiza of the Prophet ﷺ, a miracle of the Prophet ﷺ, that when he tapped it, and he said, go, he said, my camel felt like it kicked in, like turbo kicked in. And my camel started to fly. I started to pass everybody up. And that was a miracle of the Prophet ﷺ. So, he says that after a while, you know, <clears throat> the Prophet ﷺ, you know, caught up with me, because he wanted to talk to me, and the Prophet ﷺ said, Atabi'uni jamalaka hada ya Jabir? He said, Jabir, your camel's looking good. It's a nice camel. He said, Would you sell it to me? And he said, Qultu bal ahibu laka ya Rasulullah. I gift it to you, O Messenger of God. And he said, La. No, absolutely not. Walakin bi'anihi. Now, the reason why I brought up the backstory of Jabir is I told you. Six months ago, eight, six to eight months ago, we had the incident of Uhud, when Jabir lost his father. And he was now responsible for seven younger siblings. And in fact, in the narrations we talked about, he even came to the Prophet ﷺ overwhelmed saying, Oh Messenger of God, I just need to talk to somebody, I'm overwhelmed. 
My father had debt. I have seven younger siblings. I went from one day just being like a young man, like a 20-year-old with dad taking care of me, to the next day having an entire family to take care of. I'm overwhelmed. And I'm still dealing with the grief of my father. The Prophet ﷺ knew all of this. And he also knew that Jabir was planning on, was trying to get married. So the Prophet ﷺ says, will you sell me your camel? That's a nice camel. And the, he says, no, no, I gift it to you, Messenger. The Prophet ﷺ said, no, 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 no. Absolutely not. He said, well, I can be anihi. He says, you have to sell it to me. And this is kind of playful banter between him and the Prophet ﷺ. So he said, qultu fasumnihi. So I said, okay, name your price. I, Jabir says, I said to the Prophet ﷺ, then what are you willing to offer? He said, قَدْ أَخَطُهُ بِدِرْهَمٍ I will buy it for one dirham, one dollar. He says, قُلْتُ لَا I said, no, Messenger of God. إِذَنْ تَغْبِنُنِي يَا رَسُولَ اللَّهِ He says, you're, now you're just trying to rip me off. Right? You first, you say you want to buy my camel. I say, I give it to you as a gift. You say, no, no, you want to buy it. Now you're going to offer me one dollar for my camel? No, that's, that's not right. Right? Just kind of playful banter. And he says, فَبِدِرْهَمَيْنِ Two dirhams? I said, no, that's too cheap. فَلَمْ يَزَلْ يَرْفَعُ لِي رَسُولَ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهِ The Prophet ﷺ kept increasing the price حَتَّى بَلَغَ الْأُوْقِيَةِ Until he got to like a gram of gold. Very lofty price. And I said, أَفَقَدْ رَضِيدَ يَا رَسُولَ اللَّهِ So then, he, this shows that they were just playing. He says, is that okay with you now, Prophet ﷺ? Is that okay with you? You just wanted to pay me, right? Now are you okay with this? Right? I know how to bargain too. And the Prophet said, Naam. So I said, okay, fine. It's good. And he says, the Prophet said, okay, fine. I've purchased it. Then he said, this, I just figured this was just kind of fun and games. It's just kind of fun. And so after a while, the conversation goes on and he says to me, Ya Jabir, hal tazawajta ba'du? I said, Jabir, did you finally end up getting married? And he says, Naam ya Rasulullah, I did get married. He says, bikran. Did you marry a young woman or did you marry an, an older woman? Did you marry a young woman, a young girl like yourself? You a young man, did you marry a young woman? Or did you marry an older woman? I, I said, no, 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 I've married an older woman, a woman who was married previously. A widow or somebody or a divorcee or something. So the Prophet ﷺ, because Jabir was still very, very young, Shabab. And so he said, أَفَلَا جَارِيَةٌ تُلَاعِبُهَا وَتُلَاعِبُكِ Right? وَتُلَاعِبُكَ um, The Prophet ﷺ said to Jabir, he said, Jabir, why didn't you marry a younger woman? You're still a young man, like a kid. You're still a young man. You have a lot of youthful energy. You should marry a young woman like yourself. That way both of y'all can play together, have fun together, grow up together. You know, so that would have made sense. I said, O Messenger of God, Inna Abi Usiba Yoma Uhud. He said, I said, O Messenger of God, you know my father, he was killed on the Battle of Uhud. And my father left behind seven daughters. I have seven younger sisters I'm responsible for. So I did not want to add an eighth one to them that I'd have to take care of. I've married a woman who can help me raise them. I need a mature, responsible woman who can even take care of me while I take care of the seven of them. So the Prophet ﷺ at that time, you know, he said, Asabta insha'Allah. He said, no, you've made a very good decision. This is smart. Um, and then the Prophet ﷺ basically gave him some advice. 
And the Prophet ﷺ told him, he said that when we get back to Medina, so then he asked Jabir radiallahu why are you in such a hurry? Jabir radiallahu kind of spoke to the Prophet ﷺ, he said, I want to get home quickly. So why are you in such a hurry? He said, you know, I'm newly married, I want to get home, I want to see my wife. So the Prophet ﷺ said, okay, go ahead and try to get home as soon as you can. But then he gave him some advice. He said, look, because at that particular time you didn't have things like telephones and modern forms of communication, they're going to know that we're almost home when we get to the outskirts of the city of Medina. So he said that the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ, the practice of the Prophet ﷺ was, even if it was like earlier in the day, like noontime, and they arrived outside of the city of Medina, where they could just go ahead and proceed on into the city, before the evening time, before the sunset, the Prophet ﷺ would not do that. He would make the, make the army camp outside of Medina. And so he was telling Jabir that when we get back to Medina, the army is going to camp out outside of Medina. You're very eager. You're going to want to go ahead. But don't do that. He said, because we've been gone for a few days. We've been gone for a number of days. They don't know when we're going to get back. And so just like you are eager to get home, they are eager for you to get home. They're anticipating your arrival. But what happens is if you give them half a day's notice, they are able to make preparations. They're able to put together a nice little welcome party for you. Things like that. See, see how much practicality there is in the sunnah of the Prophet And how beneficial it is from all aspects. That even within the battles of the Prophet the camp military expeditions and campaigns of the Prophet there was such wisdom and such consideration for family and marital dynamics and how to conduct yourself with your loved ones. It's so remarkable. This is why we study the life of the Prophet and so he gives Jabir this advice. Anyways, they arrive back in the city of Medina. He says then, you know, sometime later, I went to go see the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. No, uh, when we did arrive back in the city of Medina, excuse me, and we got back into the city the next day, the following day, the Prophet Sallallahu told me, he instructed me, he said, the first thing you're supposed to do, the Prophet is teaching him. Because he knows Jabir has lost his father. So the Prophet is like his father figure now. And he says, listen, before you go home, you first go to the masjid and you pray two rakahs. You pray two rakahs, you go to the masjid. Before you go home, you pray two rakahs, you thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for bringing you home safe and sound. And rejoining you with your loved ones and then you go home and take that blessing home with you from the house of Allah. Right? Another sunnah of the Prophet So I said, okay, absolutely. Right? Sami'ana wa ta'ana. We, we listen, we obey. So he said, I went to go pray in the masjid. When I was done, the Prophet ﷺ, he said that when we got to the masjid, he said, your camel, I purchased it from you, remember? And, you know, again, Jabir thought that they were just playing around. But apparently the Prophet ﷺ was serious. He said, your camel, I've purchased it from you. Huh? Right? You remember? Again, you don't argue with the man. So he says, yes, O Messenger of God. He says, okay, leave your camel here outside the masjid. I'll take it. And then he sent Bilal radiallahu ta'ala anhu. Some narrations mention he sent him to Uthman bin Affan radiallahu ta'ala anhu. And he said, go and get an uqiyah of gold, the amount of gold I promised him, and give it to Jabir. It's his. I purchased his camel from him. Yes, sir. He goes and he brings him the amount of gold that he had promised him for the camel. 
So Jabir takes his gold and he goes home. But then the Prophet after a little while, he says, Aina Jabir. Aina Jabir. Where's Jabir? So somebody says he went home. So he said, okay, go get him. And he said, somebody came to my house and got me, fetched me, said, the Messenger of Allah is looking for you. So I said, okay. So I went back to the masjid and the Prophet said, Yabna Akhi. See, he even refers to him as nephew. He says, your father was my brother. He says, nephew, son, خُذْ بِرَأْسِ jamalik فَهُوَلَكْ You forgot your camel here. You forgot your camel here. He says, O Messenger of God, I gave you the camel, you gave me the gold. So should I go and get the gold? He says, no, no. You take the camel home and you keep the gold. And this was the Prophet playful way of helping Jabir. Because he knew. This young man is taking care of his whole family. And he just got married. So the Prophet ﷺ said, you keep the camel and you also keep the gold. And this was the affection, the love, the kindness, the generosity of the Messenger of Allah ﷺ. This is why the Sahaba loved him the way that they did. وَإِنَّكَ لَعَلَىٰ خُلُقٍ Right? فَبِمَا رَحْمَةٍ مِّنَ اللَّهِ لِنْتَ لَهُمْ the Prophet had authority. In our times, people are so obsessed with authority. People listening to what I say. I'm in charge. I'm responsible. I'm in charge. I have rank over you. I have such and such position. I have this office. I have this title. I'm such and I'm such, whether it be in families, whether it be in the community, whether it be at work, whether it be in society, people are obsessed with authority. The, Pro- the Prophet ﷺ had more authority than any human being has ever had. He's the messenger of Allah. Allah had declared in the Quran, Allah had taken an oath by Himself. Allah swore by Allah. Allah swore by Himself. And He said, لا يؤمنون, People will never believe until they recognize your authority, O Muhammad And they can never even feel anything bad about you having authority. They have to accept your authority and they have to like it. The Prophet had authority. But the Prophet was never, ever, ever preoccupied or concerned or worried about exerting that authority. Establishing, reminding, Hey, huh? You remember? Who's in charge? That's right. I'm in charge. No, that wasn't how the Prophet operated. And Allah said that it is because of your gentleness. And the mer- it is a blessing of God. It is a mercy of Allah. That you are so soft. Like silk. So soft and adjustable and accommodating to them. If you would have been harsh and strict because you have the authority, they would have left you long ago. But they stuck by your side. This is who the Messenger of Allah was. This is why we study his life. This is why we study his seerah, so that we can learn from him, and we can learn to be like him. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us all the ability to be more like the Messenger And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us the love, the understanding, and the implementation of the seerah of the Prophet within our lives. Subhanallah bihamdihi, subhanakallahu bihamdik, nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta, nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk.